and particularly over this last few weeks. Uh, my lovely wife, Janita, and I have been away to the Cotswolds for a little break, and I've been using this as part of my personal reflection and walk. So it's become a, a significant psalm the last two weeks, but particularly this year, and I'll explain more of that a little bit later. And uh, if you've not got a Bible, have a look in the seat in front of you. There may be a spare Bible sitting there, and as I often say, if you've not got one at home, then feel free to take that with our, our blessing. Um, now, Psalm 46 uh, in your Bible, it might have the word Selah in between some of the uh, stanzas of the song, because that's what the Psalms are, a song. So we're going to try and honour that this morning, the way I read it. It might sound a bit weird, uh, but go with me on this, and we're going to try and read it as it was originally written, because it's a precious piece of God's Word. So hopefully you're there now, Psalm 46, let's read God's Word together. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolation he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. He's given it to us because he loves us, and it's absolutely true, and we thank him for it. Amen. Amen. bit weird, I know, but that's kind of how it's written with those little gaps in between, I think. Good little moments of reflection on God's word. So... A confession, this is not the first time I've spoken from this psalm uh, here. In fact, it's not even the first time this year. If you uh, remember these things, I spoke here nine months ago on the same psalm, and our teaching plan has taken us back to the same psalm. So I'm always, straight away, a bit nervous when the Lord takes us back to a place I thought we'd been to before. So I'm asking a lot of questions of the text. What have I missed? (laughs) What are you teaching me, Lord? What is it? 
that you said to me back then that I need to relearn, or perhaps I didn't learn, uh, last time round. What are you trying to remind me of, Lord? What are you trying to take me back to? What new thing have you got for me? And those questions have become particularly relevant for me because it wasn't as if the psalm didn't have a massive impact on me back then. Uh, if you remember the parable of the lost keys that I spoke about, you know, God even gave me my own particular personal parable of what happens when we trust in the Lord and we're relaxed about trusting the Lord on that verse 10 for be still and know that I am God. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. And as I've reflected on this and as I've thought about this, one thing I've also really just was kind of maybe observed really is how different the world was nine months ago. I mean, how different have things become in just nine months? And we've been away on holiday for just two weeks and we've come home to a very different world, it feels like. But in nine months, how things have changed. And I was reflecting, nine months ago, was I really worried about double-digit inflation and the impact that could have on each of us? Nine months ago, was I worried my mortgage rate was climbing and climbing, those of us who've still got mortgages to pay? Was I worried about the affordability of my energy bills or my petrol uh, and fuel? I don't think I was quite so much. And certainly, nine months ago, was I worried about a war in Europe? I don't think I was. And one thing I certainly don't think got right back in January, so here's my confession, is I didn't understand the context in which this psalm was written. I stumbled across this in one sense by looking at an old version of the Bible. Now, you might have a, a translation of the Bible that had in the kind of um, text at the beginning, the sort of introductory text of the psalm, a little reference to uh, 2 Kings 18 or 2 Chronicles 32. Now, it's widely believed this psalm was written about 701 BC, at a time of national crisis for the kingdom of Judah, a situation where a city was on the point of annihilation, a nation on the point of annihilation, 185,000 bloodthirsty Assyrian troops, camps just a mile or so from the city. And it's sung by a choir to a people in dread and in fear of their lives. A people facing political upheaval. A people facing economic disaster. A people who were uncertain about the future. A people who were facing threats to their own lives. Some of that sound familiar. I could have called this a song for our times because it feels kind of relevant. And I'm kind of thinking, no, I was only worried about my keys back in January. Now I've got these other things to worry about. But I feel the Lord is still good and gracious. So we've called this message the good news. And the good news is the Lord hasn't changed in nine months. Praise God. He's still the same yesterday, today, forever. 
He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Don't let your heart be troubled. So let's unpack a little bit of the psalm and uh, just read a little bit of God's goodness, drink in some of God's goodness. And and I've got an anticipation this morning, uh, hopefully a, a spiritual anticipation that God is going to do amazing things in, in us, each of us, as we walk this journey with him in God's word today. So let's read that, those first few verses again, because given the context of this kind of encampment of, of bloodthirsty pagan troops, the Assyrian army were an all-conquering uh, nation that has swept into this uh, kind of time and into, into this land. Uh, if you know a little bit of your history here, uh, the kingdom now of Israel have been divided to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the Assyrian army, along with others, have pretty much wiped out the whole of this northern kingdom of Israel. And in fact, actually, the uh, Assyrian army already started to invade Judah. The, uh, the text, if you go, and I do encourage you to, uh, to read the original text in 2 Kings uh, uh, 18-19 and 2 Chronicles as well. It's, it's some of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. There's a real richness of God's word in there. Um, but this context is of, of a people who really had seen destruction all around them, of the Assyrian, armies being, Assyrian army being unstoppable, of God, in one sense, letting his people being taken to captivity and far away. So this is kind of a song that's not words of hopeless optimism. They're words of unshakable faith in the face of overwhelming circumstance. Not a song of, you know, let's just sing it and die kind of thing, but a a one sense a song of defiance that we are not alone. God stands with us. We are the people of God. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, where everything that we depend on crumbles, everything that we think is as solid as a rock crumbles, we will not fear. God is our refuge and our strength. God is our stronghold, an ever-present help in trouble. Amen. Let me just focus in on that little phrase, ever-present, the hyphenated words you might have in your text up on the screen as well, I'm sure. And we understand what that really means, because it's quick to dismiss it as God is the ever-ready God, I've called it. You know, on-demand God. Whenever you need him, he's there. He just turns up. You know, that's the kind of ever-present kind of vibe we get behind That's uh, the first reading of those words. But if you go into the original Hebrew text, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, uh, the original text, the words used have a richer meaning. Uh, I'm going to give you a bit of Hebrew. Here we go. I hope there's no Hebrew scholars here. Uh, So the two words that make up ever-present are nimsa, miod. Nimsa, miod. I'll probably pronounce that wrong. And nimsa means 
to attain to, to find, to discover, to, to come across, to experience. And miod means abundance. It means an excess. It means greatly. In fact, the word is used when uh, the, we have the recollection of the creation in Genesis, and God says it's very good, that word's miod there in the original text. And one commentator has said, which I like, is said this is all about the muchness of God, the greatness of God, the muchness of God. And what the writer is trying to say, or the songwriter is trying to say, in times of deepest trouble, in times of deepest despair, in times when we're facing absolute, you know, there's no hope for us, we find that our God is an attainable, a discoverable abundance of help, an excess of hope, that he is able to do, as Paul says, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. The muchness of God. And that people who, those people who sang that song, oh boy, <laughs> did they need this. Oh boy, did they need this. Let me tell you a bit of the story. I was going to do some scripture on this, but it's a long bit of text, and I encourage you to, to kind of read it at home, I think. But let me tell you the story. The story is one about a king called Hezekiah. Now, he was the 14th king from the line of David, the 13th king after David. And if you know, again, your history a little bit, there were good kings and bad kings, 50-50, really. And he was one of the good guys, not like his dad. His dad was a, was a crook, frankly, and an evil man. It says in the Bible that he kind of invented ways of doing evil. And he came to power only at age 25, and he did a lot of good things. He restored the temple, which his father had closed down and stripped and sent all the gold off to the Assyrians to try and buy them off, which didn't work, but that's another story. And he reintroduced the priests and the festivals and basically encouraged the people to worship God. He was, a good, he was a good guy, a good king. And we get to a point in the text where just as he's done all that stuff, the Assyrians start to invade Judah. And you can imagine that wasn't particularly, you know, he's probably saying, come on, do all this stuff for you, God, look what's happening. And, and they started to come in from the south which is a bit weird because they'd been in Samaria and they'd done, over the last little decade or so, pretty much wiped out the whole of Israel. And now they come round and they come up from the south. And there's a significance in the way they take back the land. They start to, the Assyrians take back the land in the reverse order that Joshua had taken the land in the first place. You know your story about Joshua going into the promised land? And the cities that kind of Joshua had taken in reverse order, the Assyrians now were taking back and coming up to Jerusalem. And we get this story where, not quite tanks on the lawn, but it's that kind of vibe here, right? There, there were 185,000 bloodthirsty, pagan, pretty brutal troops parked on the outside of Jerusalem. And there's kind of this, I'm not sure it's a Mexican standoff, but it's kind of this kind of like pause in, in the moment 
where the, a delegation from Assyria meets a delegation of the people of Judah. And basically, the delegation slag off the people and slag off God and say, I don't know why you're basing your confidence that God's going to help you, because he's not, right? He's not going to help you. Don't, don't fool yourself that God is somehow going to rescue you or somehow going to save you. Because none of the other gods of the other nations have ever stood in our way. We're unstoppable. We are the, you know, we are the A-team. We are unstoppable and unbeatable. And there's this beautiful, funny little bit where basically the delegation from Judah says, hang on, keep your voice down. The people on the walls are going to hear this. And because they were talking in a different language, and the guy turns into Hebrew and then shouts to the people, says, don't let Hezekiah think, make you think you're going to be okay, because you're not. You're all going to be wiped out. And he says this in the local language. They must have been going, oh, my goodness. And Hezekiah, bless his heart, despite all of this, and you've got to bear in mind these guys had taken most of Israel, they now taken parts of Judah. There was 185,000 of them sitting on the lawn outside the city, and Hezekiah says, we're going to trust in God. We're going to pray. We're going to trust in God. And he calls the prophet Isaiah, and they pray, and Isaiah speaks beautifully, prophetically, with hope, the Lord's hope into the situation. So he was encouraged by that. And there's even a thing where he writes a letter, and they have this beautiful thing where they They go into the temple and they lay the letter before the Lord and they pray over it, prostrate over it. And and I will just give you one quote because I love this line from 2 Chronicles 32. I hope it's on the screen. And Hezekiah says this, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of of Assyria and this vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. And this is the line. With him, only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. With him, only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles battles. Isn't that great? Only an arm of flesh. Don't worry about 185,000 Liam Neesons on the lawn or, you know, wherever it is. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Him, just an arm of flesh. But with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of Jacob is with us. Pretty defiant stuff. Pretty wonderful stuff. And yet, what happens next? They sing this song, this song of defiance. The God of Jacob is with us. Come on, let's go get them. No. Where every ounce of their energy is probably saying, let's go, let's go get them. God says, no, be still. Be still. Be still. Know that I'm God. As I said back in January, we've, we've misunderstood what that means. We, we've misunderstood what be still and know that I am God really means. We kind of think it's about silence and solitude. I just sit there quietly and God will turn up. Well, that's true in part as well, by the way. 
But that's not what it means. As I said back in January, be still means to stop, to cease, to, to abate, to, to, to stop worrying, to chillax, if you like. The, the, the word is actually almost be complacent about your worries, almost sort of like be negligent about what's going on. And it's kind of got that sort of meaning to it. To be slack, to be idle, it kind of be, kind of be translated. And then that word, no, this isn't, I've learned it at school. No, 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 this is not that no. It's to discover. You'll discover. Basically, God was saying, stop worrying. I've got this. And if you can just relax, you'll find out that I'm God. You'll find out I'm God. Stop your striving. Stop putting your effort into this thing. Because when you do that, you'll find out that I am God. And I feel, as I've prepped this, the Father would say to us today, trust me, trust me. I know what's going on. It's okay. I've got this one. I've got this one. You don't need to solve this. You don't need to fix this because I've got this one. Be still and know you'll discover that I'm God. Isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we need right now? We need to know that he's God. So how does the story end, Phil? How does this thing end? 185,000 troops, bloodthirsty, pagan troops, blaspheming God, sitting on the lawn, ready to go, tooled up, ready to run. That's how God solves it. One night, one verse, one angel. One night, one verse, one angel. That was it. 185,000 troops, the A-team, 185,000 sitting on the lawn. God says one angel on one night, and it talks about it in one verse here. And what's beautiful about the way this whole story is recorded in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles is the writers here catalogue in great detail all of this discussion, this blasphemous words, these prophetic words, the people's position, the people. It, it, there's chapter after chapter when you read the story of all this stuff, right? And then God says, one night, one angel in just one verse. 2 Kings 19, hopefully it's up on the screen. That night, the, angel of the, the, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 Assyrian troops. When they woke up in the morning, there all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, this evil king, broke camp, withdrew, and went home, basically. One angel, one night, done. Problem solved, fixed finished, done, it's over. That's all it takes. 
Just one word. Just one word. Just one encounter with God. Just one prayer. Just one moment in his presence. Just one touch of the Savior. Just one encounter with the Holy Spirit. Just one. Be still. Be still. Know I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. God is an exceeding abundance of help whenever you need him. And he is immeasurably more than that. Immeasurably more. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine.